Today on Basic, Brian Cranston. A man named Vince Gilligan called the agency and said, I want to see Brian Cranston for this role on my new show, Breaking Bad. He was the knucklehead to say, I want the goofy dad from Malcolm in the Middle to play Walter White. We had no clue if it was going to be a hit. We're just this little show on a cable channel. They realized, well, if we're going to play in this arena, we have to do it with new, inventive, high-quality performances and production values. I think what makes these anti-hero characters, Vic Mackey and Don Draper and Tony Soprano, I think what makes them resonant is that they're human and complex. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of basic cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, former TV executive, and I want you to say my name. And I'm Jen Cheney, a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, and I am the one who knocks. <laughs> Jen, I know you are as excited as I am to bring one of this generation's greatest actors to the pod today, Brian Cranston. Yeah, I'm very excited. Uh, he, you know, he first came into view for a lot of people as Hal, the father on Malcolm in the Middle, but his breakthrough role, obviously, was as Walter White in the legendary AMC series Breaking Bad, for which he won three straight Emmy Awards for Best Leading Actor. And he's gone on to star in some truly great films, some TV appearances, and really great stage projects as well. Hey, stick with us. Jen and I will be back after our discussion about Breaking Bad to break it all down. So hang with us and enjoy Brian Cranston. Well, we are honored and thrilled to welcome Brian Cranston to the Basic Podcast. Brian, thank you so much for being here. Nice to be with you. So we traditionally start off with our guests asking them the same question. Do you remember when you first got cable television? I'm a guy who grew up with all phases of television, from when the, the screens were, you know, about 10 inches in diameter, and, and then growing up, from black and white televisions to colored ones with rabbit ears, then to cable, then to, you know, satellite, then it's just expansive. And it's um, it's interesting to have, you know, seen the evolution of television and cable throughout uh, my career in the last 42 years or whatever. Obviously, you worked in a lot of different roles early in your career, but I think you were probably best known to the public for your comedy work, certainly on Seinfeld as uh, Tim Watley, the famous regifter, and then really on Malcolm in the Middle. Were you thinking about trying to do more dramatic work post Malcolm in the Middle when Breaking Bad came along, or, or were you just going to whatever jobs were you know attractive to you? That's exactly correct, Jen. But I think it would be remiss if I didn't confess with all transparency how Doug Herzog had a, a huge impact <laughs> on my career. It was Doug who greenlit uh, Malcolm in the Middle to be on the air to begin with. I mean, he was the guy to be able to make that choice and say, that's a good show, let's run with it. And um, that started everything for me, from going from a journeyman actor and doing roles on Seinfeld and King of Queens and Matlock and all, I mean, the whole gambit of shows, whether it's drama or comedies, and to be able then to be one of the stars of a successful sitcom was everything to me. And it was uh, seven great years to be able to say that this, this was such terrific writing and 
concept uh, was just wonderful. I, I just want to enter. I want to stop you there. First of all, I appreciate that very much. All I did was say yes to a script I, I liked very much and thought was really funny. And that original pilot script, of course, won the Emmy, which was amazing. But I want to say when I read that script originally, I thought Jane Kaczmarek's role was much more sort of fully fleshed out and realized by the writers at that time, and yours so much less so. And I think one of the great stories of Malcolm in the Middle, and to your credit, you stepped into what was a little bit, I don't want to say it was an empty vessel, but you really created that character and brought that character to life and made it one of TV's, I think, all-time dads. Uh, great writers on that show, great producers on that show, but I think there's a lot to be said about what Brian Cranston sort of brought to that role and, and what he made it into. You know, it's an actor's job to take what is given and fill it out. I love to work. I love to create. And it's not proper for an actor to show up on a set and then ask a director, what is it you want me to do? That's not the way you go about it. An actor should come in fully loaded with ideas and justifiable actions and activities behind that. Why would this character be doing such a thing? And help. And so the triumvirate between writer, director, actor should all work in concert to raise the profile of not just the writing, but the inspiration from the actor and what they got gleaned from the right. writing, and then the input from the director to just lift everything up. And if everybody's doing their job, you can really have some truly memorable content. What you did with Malcolm in the Middle. But to get back to Jen's question, so what were you thinking post-Malcolm in the future for Brian Cranston? Yeah, you know, after seven years of playing Hal and Malcolm in the Middle, I realized, okay, that was great. And I shouldn't and won't do anything else like that. And I did get two offers to do pilots the next year to that are, you know, oh no, it's, you're perfect for it. He's a, he's a fun loving, goofy dad. And I would say, well, I just did that for seven years. I couldn't, it's too soon to be able to switch gears and make this new character any different. And by the way, I did just didn't consider it. It just wasn't for me. So I, my attention was to switch gears, to look for dramatic pieces. Lo and behold, later that same year, after we shut down, and it was our final year in 2006, a man named Vince Gilligan called the agency and said, uh, I want to see Brian Cranston for this role on my new show, Breaking Bad. And... I was very, very fortunate that I was then available. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really interesting because I will say that I tell young actors all the time, you have to have talent, you have to have patience and perseverance, and there's one element that you have to have to have a successful career, and that's luck. And you never know when that luck is going to come in and play a significant role in your career path, but you have to be ready for it. And I was very lucky in this case. Near the end of 2006, when we finished our seventh season of Malcolm in the Middle, uh, the network told us, wait, keep the sets up. We may go an eighth season. Oh, fantastic. We all kept our fingers crossed. We were having such a great time. But Fox had a very good spring. They had a very good pilot season, and they decided not to pick up Malcolm in the Middle for an eighth season. Oh, initially I was, I was disappointed, but you get over it and you go on. 
And then Breaking Bad came up and I was able to get the pilot of that. Well, the truth is, if Malcolm in the Middle did get picked up for an eighth season, I would not have been able to do the pilot for Breaking Bad. So someone else would be talking to you right now. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it is it is luck, but it also helped that, you know, you did consistently good work and, and I think was someone that people enjoyed working with. And that's why Vince Gilligan thought of you, because you had worked with him on an, an X-Files episode right. and he remembered your performance. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. He was the knucklehead to say, I want the goofy dad, the hapless father from Malcolm in the Middle to play Walter White, which uh, <laughs> initially was not met very, very uh, well. You, you know, to, the, to that point, before Jen gets back to her question, I remember seeing like some print ads for Breaking Bad, you know, saying starring Brian Cranston. And I thought to myself. That's a weird premise for a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hmm, okay, that's edgy. All right. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was a risk. And I think what people have asked me all the time, did you know that it was going to be a hit? And there's, there's nobody in our industry that knows that at all. The only thing you can identify is if something is good. Uh, we knew we were doing something good in the deserts of New Mexico, but we had no clue if it was going to be a hit. We're just this little show on a cable channel. And, you know, just do the best you can and hope for the best. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Do you remember your reaction to the pilot script when you first read it? Because that pilot does not play around. It gets right into it right off the bat. And I'm sure that was exciting to read as an actor. I was very, very fortunate. When I read Malcolm in the Middle, I thought, oh my God, this is this is hilarious. But at the core of it, what came through is the foundation of love. So if you create that love at the center of your story, that gives permission for the audience to accept the insanity and craziness and hijinks and humor that goes on all around that. But it always came back to love and that family's core. It was such a gift to be able to get that fantastic story of Malcolm in the Middle. It's so well-written. And then the same year that that ended, I read this script. It blew me away. It was the best one-hour script I had ever read. And after I read it, I thought, oh, my God, I've really got to go after this. And I gave it to my wife to read. And I said, one thing about this is that it's going to shoot in New Mexico. And, you know, she doesn't want me to leave the house. In Malcolm in the Middle, for seven years, the studio was two miles from our house for seven years. And that was nice to be able to come home every single night and have our family. It's almost like not, it's like a nine to five job. Those yeah, right? It's crazy. And so unlike an actor's career being vagabonds and travelers, but this would shoot in New Mexico. And I was watching her as she was reading the entire thing and she finished reading it. And I said, well, and she kind of tossed it aside and said, shit. <laughs> <laughs> because she knew I had to do it. I had to do it. So the show was pitched quite a bit around town. Vince took the show to uh, many networks, so many cable networks. Uh, it was actually in development at FX at one point, and they passed. How much did you know about AMC at that point? And when the show was greenlit, I don't think Mad Men had even premiered yet. So did you see AMC or cable as a less desirable place to be or did make a difference? Or how were you looking at that? When I was considering doing it, I, I mean, I really wanted to do it, but I was concerned that it was going to be on at the time, AMC, which, well, there was one original at one time about a radio station or something like that, but mostly it was playing old movies. And at the time, it really wasn't something that took off. Remember, this is 2006. So this is before the smartphone came out, as before any of those things at our fingertips to be able to watch anything at any time. I voiced my concerns the folks at AMC said, before we talk about this, Charlie Collier. Great guy. Yeah, great guy. and Love Charlie. Yeah, Ed Carroll and everybody over there was fantastic. And they said, before we talk, can I send you a DVD of a show we're going to premiere? We've already shot it. We've already got the season. It hasn't premiered yet. But your show would follow this pattern, this kind of level of quality. And I watched the pilot episode and the second episode of Mad Men. And that's all you have to see. I mean, that show was fantastic. And I thought, oh, my concerns are quelched, you know, that I don't I don't have them anymore. This is great. Let's go. Let's continue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Breaking Bad was really well received by critics as soon as it came out. But I think 
one of the first major things that happened to boost the show's profile was you winning an Emmy for your performance in it for the first season. And to the point of Mad Men, that was also in the Emmy race that year in one best drama. So that really established AMC is actually, you might think it's just showing old movies, but you need to be paying attention to this network. Yeah. And it's good for the industry to have, you know, I, I would say that premium cable outlets, they realized, well, if we're going to play in this arena, if we're going to draw any attention, we have to do it with new, inventive, high quality performances and production values and tell stories that have not been told before that you just can't get on broadcast television. And they did. They knew they had to be bespoke in their presentation of their work. If you're derivative of what anyone can see on broadcast, it's not going to work. Right. We never at any network I was at wanted to do a lesser version of what the broadcast networks were already doing, because why would anybody come? So we had to find new new ideas, new spaces, new ways to do things and take our chances that way. And Breaking Bad's a great example of that. So the show got great buzz originally, great critical acclaim, but not like huge ratings. No. Good, good enough ratings to continue getting renewed for several seasons. But there was a moment there where AMC licensed the show to Netflix. Yeah. And that seemed to be a big turning point in terms of visibility. Was that something you were very conscious of when you were on the set and at the show that it was kind of taken off in a very different way? Without the advent of Netflix's conversion to uh, streaming, Breaking Bad wouldn't have been the show that it became. At the time, when we did the pilot, they were still sending out the red envelopes of movies. And in 2008, when the smartphones started and Netflix was transitioning from hard stock hardware and mailing to streaming on computers, that changed their game completely. And it gave everyone else access to the show. Oh, I've heard about that show. And now just push the button and you're watching it. It was just so much ease of use. And that's what did it. You know, it's and then yeah. they came up with that, you know, the next episode will start in three seconds, two seconds. Right. One second. <laughs> oh, my God. Before I can answer, I'm watching the next episode. And there you go. And it's like, oh, wow. And so that's what did it. That's what really catapulted Breaking Bad to a, a, the atmosphere that we were able to uh, enjoy from that point on. Very bingeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredibly bingeable, yeah. I mean, it wasn't developed, obviously, as a Netflix show, but the idea that I can watch what happens next in three seconds, very appealing when you're watching that show and you're on the edge of your couch every single week at the end of the episode. Yeah. Our pal Joel Stillerman, when he came to AMC, yeah. he said, are you watching Breaking Bad? And I wasn't at that point. He sent me DVDs. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> yeah. I think of season one. And then I started watching on Netflix. And I remember my wife and I, like, over a weekend, like, we didn't leave the couch. Yeah. We've just ripped through them all. Yeah. And it was, I, you know, that was that was my first real binging experience. It is. Actually, Netflix has said, I think, I heard from them that Breaking Bad was the birthplace of the binge. Yeah. There you go. I think it's also, it signaled to the cable networks that 
not that there's still not a sense of competition with streamers like Netflix, but that the streamers can actually be helpful to the cable networks by elevating their work and bringing people. That was the thought at the time I was running cable networks. But in truth, <laughs> in truth, it actually a cable show sort of signaled the demise, a cable show being Breaking Bad, I think ultimately signaled the demise of basic cable and the ascent of binging and streaming. It was a real moment. So obviously playing Walter White was an incredibly intense, dramatic uh, exercise. And, you know, in, in season two, you had to watch Kristen Ritter choke on her own vomit. Uh, you had to make the I'm the one who knocks speech. You have, there's so many scenes that are just really intense and memorable. But when you think back on your experience on the show, are there, is there a scene or two that stands out for you personally as being extra challenging or extra intense? Well, you mentioned it, the, the, the scene in season two where Kristen Ritter dies. Sorry, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it. <laughs> um, there you go. As an actor, you, you, when I read a scene like that, I look for the steps that help me get to an emotional level that I think I want to go to. And we talked through it, that it was my impulse as a human being was to protect, to save her life, save a life. And then, so it, it's kind of complex because <laughs> Vince Gilligan first conceived that scene as Walter White sitting on the edge of the bed, seeing these two strung out people on heroin and realizing that this girl got my partner, my de facto son, if you will, hooked on heroin. And, you know, I mean, she's basically going to kill him. That's his pathway. So the original concept was for Walter White to caress her shoulder and then push her on her back mm. to allow the choking to happen, basically directly involved in her death. <laughs> the network and the studio went, ah, so soon, please, can you hold <laughs> up, hold up, it's just season two. So we, he rethought it, and to his credit, he listened, and then it got to the point where it was indirect that my focus is on Jesse to try to wake him up. And as I shake him to wake him up, to come out of his drug stupor, that motion, that vibration made her fall on her back on her own. It wasn't intentional. Okay. And I did not notice that she fell on her back because my focus was on Jesse and my despair at looking at this young boy in this state. Then when she starts to choke on her vomit, my impulse was help her. So I get up and I run across the bed to the other side to help her. And before I do, now I stop myself. Wait a second. What am I doing? Am I just saving her temporarily? Is she then tomorrow going to have another one and die then? I mean, and in so doing, is she going to kill my partner? Is this do I stay out of it and let fate as if I was never here? You know, I'm going through all these things. And one of the things I was writing down, as I write down the potential emotional expression or response to any given stimuli, any given scene, I write them down. And once I write them down, I have trust that it's in the back of my mind. And that when I shoot it, I'm not thinking about those things. But because I did the homework for it, it could present itself in the pro and con. Should I save her? Should I not save her? One of the things I wrote down in, in the sh I should save her is 
she's young enough to be my daughter, my child. She's a human being. Save her. So all of a sudden, when I'm shooting the scene, two cameras on me as I'm looking at Kristen, who off camera is giving her all in choking and simulating the dying. I was looking at Kristen's face and that thing popped into my mind. She could be my daughter and my daughter's face replaced Kristen's in my view, in my deep emotional state at that time. And I saw my own daughter dying, choking on her own vomit. And it made me jolt and vibrate with nervousness and anxiety at seeing that. And that's in the cut. And afterward, I just started weeping. And Anna Gunn was there and she held me. And I, it was, I was a wreck because it was that one of those things that actors, you have to put yourself in a position to be uh, emotionally vulnerable. And I did. And sometimes you pay the price for that. So I'm, I'm curious, the writing down that you are describing, do you do that with every scene you do? Not with every scene, um, because sometimes a scene is too simplistic to go deep. Mm-hmm. But when it's a complex scene, when it has layers of emotional value to it, yes, I do. Because then I want to know what layers I'm playing at any given time. And you don't want to show an emotion too soon. You really want to think about how a scene plays out and when you want to peel back the next layer and then the next layer. And that's what gives a performance and an overall production its depth and complexity is that the audience will feel and see those layers take place. But it it does take thought and it does take a conversation, what you glean from the script, what you discuss with your director and your own sensibilities and it's an amalgamation of that that creates the performance. Speaking of um, Jesse Pinkman, your on-screen partner, is there any truth? uh, We've heard that he was supposed to be written out of the show after the first season and and the writer's strike sort of scuttled that. Yes. Is that that accurate? It's, It's very accurate. In Vince Gilligan's mind, he realized that a high school chemistry teacher would not know, even if he was producing crystal meth, how would he then sell that product? He wouldn't know where to go and how much to sell it. He would be lost. So he knew he needed a conduit person that can connect him with that street-level drug dealing. And that was the birth of Jesse Pinkman. Jesse was going to be around until Walt was able to get a foothold into what that world was like and then continue on with his sale. But it's just to the credit of Aaron Paul's talent and and personality that it made it sing. Uh, those scenes with Walt and Jesse were so oil and water in a beautiful way that the writers and Vince quickly realized, oh, wait a second, wait a second, let's scuttle the outlines for the rest of the season and let's rework this. And so in many ways, the writer's strike that happened in that year was an assist for Breaking Bad because it gave Vince the time to reconsider and go down a different path. I mean, that's that's incredible because not having that Jesse-Walt relationship would change the show so much. Yeah, yeah. 
And they realize he shouldn't just be a foil to Walter White, but he should ha have his own fully realized character because Aaron Paul can pull that off. He has the depth of talent to be able to do that. It showed a life that got derailed somehow. And it was great. The juxtaposition between the two characters, we had nothing in common except for this specific endeavor. Everything was different between us. To kind of fast forward a little bit to the Breaking Bad finale. As you know, finales are very fraught. People come into them with very high expectations, and especially a show like this where you've been trying to see how this is going to re resolve itself for Walt. And I think so many people use the, the Breaking Bad finale as an example of how to do a good finale because it felt like it stuck the landing, it answered all your questions, and it did it with the same tone and sensibility that was very consistent to what the show was. But going into that finale, were you thinking about any of that? And were you aware of what the reaction was to it after it aired? Uh, no, I wasn't aware. Just through my own circles, I was aware that it struck a tone that was appropriate and authentic. It wasn't pandering to the audience, but it was satisfying and fulfilling to the audience and an appropriate ending. I had no idea where it was going personally. That's the genius of Vince Gilligan and his team, that he was able to couch the twists and turns of how it was going to come to that end in a way that was just so beautiful. I thought it was the perfect ending. It made me, it made me cry. And I watched it at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery with 3,500 other people watching it on a big screen. And we did it for a charity. Aaron Paul's wife, Lauren, has a charity called The Kind Campaign, and we did it to raise money for that. And with 3,500 people all watching this play out, pin drop during the silent moments, not a sound, not a movement. Everybody was glued to this. And it was so incredibly satisfying. The music selection and just the story itself. Some people can say it ended tragically. Others would say it ended appropriately and non-tragic, that it was headed toward that direction and you shouldn't have been surprised if it headed that way. So unbelievably satisfying. I obviously incredibly, incredibly proud of that period in my life and realized that, wow, that happened. And now I have to try to erase that character and move on with my acting career in a way that allows me to present other characters to an audience that they would believe. Which you've done incredibly successfully, by the way, as someone who's seen a lot of your post-Breaking Bad work, both on screen and on stage. Thank you. So, so Walter White became part of this generation of dark, complicated TV anti-heroes, you know, Tony Soprano, Don Draper, Vince Mackey, or, or a few of them. Why do you think shows like this and characters like this were so appealing? And was it a particular time? It was. Everything happens at the right time. You know, serendipity is, is a real thing, is that you could have a great show idea, but it could be before its time. Uh, my daughter did a, did a show called Sweet Vicious for MTV. We were just talking about that before you she, came on. She, she, did that, she did that for me at MTV. Yes. And she <laughs> I try and keep the whole family going, uh, Brian. I, you know, <laughs> well, Doug, I'm just here to help. You know, I forgot that you were there, then, but that was a great show and entertaining and so important. And I think it was before its time. I think it, you know, it's 
well before Me Too movement, well, and it's like the wave now, if that came back, it would be like, oh, that's really of the moment. And those are just, you know, you got to really be lucky in that sense. So I think Breaking Bad and the timing of it was perfect. If it was presented a couple years before that, maybe not. If it was a couple years after that, also maybe not, because then it, there could have been other shows like it to precede it. So it's hard to pick and choose, but I think good stories are really evergreen. And from a producer standpoint, and when I, when I go out and pitch shows ideas, I also get a sense that, okay, we didn't sell it, but I'm not giving up on this because I think it was too early. Let's pull it back for a year or two and then come back out with it. And I think that the timing then would be more ripe. You know, it's still a guess. We're still just trying to figure out where do we go next? But yes, Breaking Bad, I think what makes these characters, these anti-hero characters of Vic Mackey and Don Draper and Tony Soprano and it, who came before Walter White and in some ways stood on the shoulders of those characters. I think what makes them resonant is that they're human and complex. I think gone are the days of the unsophisticated good guy and bad guy, clear cut, white hat, black hat. And it's like, we just don't believe that. No one is all good and no one is all bad. And isn't it more interesting to see a quote unquote bad character? Oh my God, this guy's vicious. And we follow him home and he picks up his little baby daughter and just nuzzles with her. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> human beings are capable of many things. And uh, that that's a much more compelling thing to watch than something that is easily discardable. If I see a character that is clearly bad, has no qualities that are positive, and it's easily dismissed. Okay, bad guy. I'm not investing in him or her, whatever the case is. But if the character presents itself with idiosyncrasies that are in-depth and complex, I'm curious about that person, and I might tiptoe in before I fully invest, but you've got my interest and my curiosity, and I'm leaning, and then the rest is up to them to keep that invitation coming, and then we turn on them. I mean, Breaking Bad is that perfect example. He's presented as this sad sack, this guy who's trying to, he loves his science, but he looks out to his students, a sea of apathy as far as science is concerned. He has to have a second job in order to pay for his special needs son's needs, you know, and he's going to have a baby and it's like, oh God. And now he has cancer. Oh my God. Well, that just invites the audience in with a full throated uh, embrace of, of empathy and then they're in. I'm in. I feel for this guy. Oh, so then the more I started a turn, it challenged that empathetic stance that the that the audience had. And some then had to say, no, no, I can't, I can't root for him anymore. I can't, I can't do it. But even saying those words means you are engaged. And that's what good production, good storytelling does. Hey, you uh and Aaron Paul are. We, I think we've all heard this, are, are going to be appearing on Better Call Saul. Tell us a little bit about how that came to pass. And was that something, did you want to be acknowledged in the prequel? Uh, it's not something that I or Aaron wanted to be acknowledged. 
but it's something that we put out to Vince and to Peter Gould with an open invitation. When the show first started, I said, you know I'll do anything for you. So if you think that having Walter White and Jesse Pinkman appear on Better Call Saul is appropriate to your story, we're in. Just tell us the word. But I'm not going to come after you. I'm not going to try to pitch or advocate or promote or anything. I, I just wanted to be a fan of the show, to be honest with you. Right. And it was, it was great to do that. And everywhere I went, every single interview had that question included in the interview. Are you going to be on Better Call Saul? And the truthful answer was, I don't know. I don't know. It depends. Until a year ago, in fact, a year ago, April, is when we shot our segment on Better Call oh, wow. Saul. And we shot it out of sequence. It was the time that Aaron and I both happened to be available. So they flew us in privately into Albuquerque, went to a private area of the airport. As soon as we got off the plane, there was an SUV waiting for us at the steps. So the last step onto the tarmac was two steps and then into the car. <laughs> we were completely cloaked and we were driven. It's very, it's very Breaking Bad. It's very Breaking Bad. <laughs> and it's, it was exciting because no <laughs> one knew or could know that we were in town. We were there for four days and we went to an Airbnb where he had the upper floor, I had the bottom floor, and there we stayed. We were not allowed to leave. We wow. had food brought into us by by the production, you know, and there were there was a coffee pot and things that we needed. Right. <laughs> and I was I brought my little stretchy so I can do some exercise, you know, but we're not allowed to leave. <laughs> and then the SUV would show up and we'd get into the van and drive to the studio. There's a scene that Aaron is in without me, and there's a scene in where I'm in without him. And then there's a scene where we're both in. So there's three scenes to come. So uh, right. it's, it's it's pretty cool. But to be honest with you, it's like because we shot everything in a bubble and completely out of sequence, I don't even know what episodes we're in, to be honest. We're all going to find out together. You're going to find out. That's amazing. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, obviously, of Breaking Bad, but also Better Call Saul, I think, it's remarkable that they were able to make a prequel that both threads in a lot of Breaking Bad stuff, but is also just incredible on its own merits. And another actor best known for his comic turns turned dramatic actor in Bob Odenkirk. Yeah. And Bob did a, just a, a marvelous job taking command of the character and running with it. You know, it's yeah. it's. He's terrific. We also have a traditional last question. Oh, okay. Any answer is fine. But we always ask our guests, what is your all-time favorite basic cable show? Aside from things that you, of course, have done yourself. Ah, basic cable show. You know, uh, I guess, was Dirty Jobs part of the basic cable thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah thousand percent, yeah. I love that. And it's also that show, How It's Made. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There you go. Two uh, good ones. Just, I'm so attracted to, you know, assembly lines and machinery that's created to make the widget that goes into this piece of something. You know, it's like, it's fascinating to me. And um, so I, I was always attracted to those kinds of behind the curtain kind of shows, how something is done and performed. Brian, you are arguably one of this generation's great actors and, and everybody should know 
also a great guy and a true gentleman. It was an enormous privilege to have you here today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Brian Cranston. Yeah, thank, thank you, Doug. Brian. Thank you, Jan. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, till next time. Well, there were so many amazing things about that conversation with Brian Cranston, but one of them that really stuck out for me is the way he was describing how he got into character and how he got into the right emotional mindset for filming that scene with Christian Ritter in season two of Breaking Bad. I've interviewed many actors and you ask them about their process and sometimes it's hard for them to describe what it is because it's very personal. Sometimes it can be really abstract. But I would say the two actors who have been very, very good at communicating, Brian, that which he just did, and then ironically, Ray Seahorn, who's on Better Call Saul, she is very good about describing her process in a way that is really clear for other people to understand and not too precious, but it also just gives you real insight into what she goes through. Uh, I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, I agree. Uh, not surprised at all that Brian can articulate it uh, as he does. He's so thoughtful. And yeah, I think that I think it's not precious at all and it doesn't feel actory. You know, it feels like somebody talking about their craft in a really specific, thoughtful way that somebody like me, who's not an actor, can really understand and absorb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just that whole idea of him writing things down. I thought that was so fascinating because everybody's process is different. And I don't yeah. think I've heard someone describe kind of act of writing down thoughts and, and keeping it straight in your mind. It's People think acting is easy, but the very great actors, it's it's not easy. It's It's a very thoughtful, complicated process that they go through. Yeah. And if you look at his career, you know, I mean, he started on soap operas, but, you know, Malcolm in the Middle, which was a great comic turn for him, obviously. Breaking Bad, what a tremendous, traumatic role, anti-hero. And then he's done a lot of TV and a lot of film work specifically, but I've seen him on stage a number of times. And he is a tremendous stage actor. I mean, he's really a truly gifted thespian. And I and when I said, you know, one of this generation's great actors, I, I really believe so. I think he's one of the greats. Mm -hmm. I have not had the pleasure of seeing him on stage, but I do feel like we should, you know, give a shout out to Tim Watley, the Seinfeld character. He came back multiple times. It's not like he was just in one episode. I think that speaks to how good Brian is, that they kept Tim Watley, who could have just been a one-off, coming back in multiple episodes. And that's how he got his role on, on Malcolm in the Middle. You know, the story of Malcolm in the Middle was that role had not been filled until the day before the table read. We could not find the father. I said, it wasn't really a fleshed out character. Jane Kaczmarek's character was much more fleshed out. I remember trying, we actually tried to get Jamie Lee Curtis to play that role. She turned it down. I was convinced it was the next Roseanne and that it was going to be an Emmy award winning role. And I told Jane Kaczmarek that, and I'm sure I feel bad about it now because I'm sure I jinxed her because she never won. <laughs> but, um, but she was but great. That, yeah, she, she, she was unbelievable. She's also a great actress. But Brian's role was not really that fleshed out. We literally were a day before the table read and two days before shooting and nobody was cast. And then somebody came to my office with his reel of his Seinfeld uh, episodes. I was like, oh yeah, that guy. Yeah, he's hilarious. We should hire that guy. And that's just simply how it got started. And then he turned it into, along with the writers and the and the great you know producers, turned it into what it was. But getting back to Breaking Bad, I also thought it was really interesting when he talked about the show going to Netflix, because Breaking Bad, as we talked about, that was really at the nexus of the ascent of streaming, the decline of basic cable, and the beginning of binging as something people were really doing. So kind of an important role in that regard um, or an important show in that regard. Well, important, first of all, just as we talked about, like the idea that 
AMC was going to be doing original programming. At the time, I was like, what? They they really were. They were they weren't even a good movie channel. (laughs) At the time, they were not. (laughs) And I think that was sort of a turning point in that you could see like, oh, some of these networks that you may not be thinking of for original programming, like they all want to get into that space as well. And then again, a few years later, when Netflix kind of boosted Breaking Bad, I mean, yes, it signaled the demise maybe of basic cable, but I feel like everybody, all these companies now operate under that same idea that like, even AMC, for example, they have AMC Plus, which is their streaming service. And Better Call Saul, I believe, is routinely shows on AMC Plus first before it's broadcast on AMC. You know, I think people are really much more engaged with the idea of how these two things can work hand in hand to attract audiences. And I think Breaking Bad is a huge reason why. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think if you listen to this, you can tell how much Jen and I enjoyed speaking with Brian Cranston. Hopefully you enjoyed listening and we hope you will be back with us next time on BASIC. BASIC is a Pantheon media production in partnership with Sirius XM, hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog, produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find BASIC on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to follow the show so you you never never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.